It is with great reluctance that I have agreed to this calling. I love democracy. I love the republic. Once this crisis has abated, I will totally lay down the powers you've given me. I have a bad feeling about this. This is The 11 Days of Star Wars. Welcome to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exorcise our pop culture demons by spending two weeks at Christmas lovingly analyzing all the highs and lows of our favorite franchises. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. Joining us today is our dearest friend and Padme Amidala fashion expert, Elise. Please note, I am not an expert on fashion. Hi. But she is an expert on Padme Amidala. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not inclined to call myself an expert on anything, but I appreciate the title regardless. All right, Elise. So we started this yesterday, both in recording time and in release time with Matt. And so one of the things that we are asking all of our guests right off before we start talking about Star Wars, because this is a holiday special series, it's important for us to talk about the holidays and the context in which we are watching these films. So Elise, in segment one, holidays in the aftertimes, what are you most excited for this holiday season? What are you looking forward to? Um, This year, we are back to normal in my family, at least, um, with regard to our annual Latka Fest party. We all go drive to Long Island. I'm, I'm in central New Jersey to my aunt's house. And basically, it's like an assembly line of latka making. Um, and we have my uncle Mark's grandmother's recipe. And you can only shred by hand. There are no like kitchen aids involved in this process. Um, so there's a line of like, who's someone shredding potatoes, someone shredding onions, and we our recipe has zucchini in it. So we're also shredding that. And then there's usually t- like two very huge pans that take up the entire stove. So someone mans each one and then those go onto another rack to cool off and before when they're still very hot they get um sea salt on them there's a there's some other ingredients as well but it is in a couple weeks so we're doing that on the 17th so i'm very excited how many latkes do you think you all make per lot per latka fest you basically have to like burn your clothes when you leave because you just come home smelling like oil um i really there's usually like 20 of us there. It has to be like s- at least like s- like 70, I would say. There's a lot of latkes. Oh, wow. Lots of latkes. I mean, Latka Fest. You would expect there to be lots of latkes. There. So I learned something new about Latka Fest um, this weekend, actually. Even though I've been going to it forever, apparently my dad is the one that named it Latka Fest. Like he called it that as a joke really? one year. And we've been calling it that since. And it's to the point where my aunt often has uh, merchandise made up for us to take home that says like <laughs> Latka Fest and then the year, like a mug or a wine glass. And then once it was COVID and we had to cancel, she had already like 
was thinking about sending out packages. Like, she sent everyone the recipe and, like, a little package. Um, she sent everyone Latka Fest um, hand sanitizer that year. <laughs> that's that's clever. I love it. I love it when something gets named after a joke and it just, yeah. like, people go all in on it. It's really yes. the perfect naming convention. Sam, you haven't answered this question yet. What are you looking forward to? Or what's one of the things you're looking forward to in holidays in the aftertimes? Well, on Christmas Day, which is a day for watching movies. <laughs> I don't know. We recently talked about Little Women. Maybe, maybe we can never go see a movie in the theater again on Christmas because that movie was so good. But I'm not really impressed with movies in the theater. And so instead of watching a movie at home, I'm going to subject Tessa to the first two Anne of Green Gables miniseries, Fun Head by All. Do you want to tell people why that's important to you that I watch them? Because you've never seen it. And? And Anne of Green Gables is my favorite book. And? And I love the miniseries. Didn't you watch them with your grandmother? Uh, Isn't that like uh, a holiday thing? Yes. Well, no, it wasn't a holiday thing. They had it on tape ah, at I their see. house. So that's how I saw it first. I feel like movies or miniseries on tape at your grandparents' house, like they mm-hmm. have like a very special like place. Yeah, there's there's a whole micro generation of kids who know the PBS Pledge Drive Greatest Hits, which is Anna Green Gables and the Peter Paul and Mary live show. <laughs> I think think there was a Moody Blues show in there too, but I could be wrong. I'm it's, sure there was. Nope. Yeah, it's it's definitely the Peter, Paul, and Mary though. That was that was always on too. See, at my grandparents' house, it was always John Wayne movies and Shirley Temple movies. So let's move on to talking about the movie that we are here to discuss. Episode two, The Attack of the Clones, or is it just Attack of the Clones? Attack of the Clones. Okay. It is A-O-T-S, not T-A-O-T-S. <laughs> Episode 2, Attack of the Clones. So for segment 2, we have our initial impressions to answer the question, is this movie a good Elise? What were your initial impressions re-watching Attack of the Clones this time? I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I had the last couple times I watched it. I think I've been really trying to, I don't mean in a forceful way, but like find the good in things that I liked when I was young, because sometimes you watch some stuff stuff that you liked when you were younger and you're like, this sucks. I just, I really thought that this movie had a lot of cool aliens. Um, I liked the costumes. There were cool like ships and vessels. I actually do like the plot. Got some R2 and C-3PO stuff, which was fun. And it has my second favorite um, score in any of the Star Wars films, um, Across the Stars, even though I don't know that the characters earn that, but that's another conversation for later. And it just looked really cool. Like, in, like, Geonosis, they just had all that, uh, the pit, and, like, it just looked like a vagina, and that was really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Things that look like vaginas. Puts the movie a little (laughs) bit further ahead. Yeah, but I definitely know that there are some bad aspects and things I do not like of this movie. Um, 
we have like I don't think that the direction was very good. I think the the cast was kind of done a disservice and not helped as much as they should have been. Um, some of the dialogue was pretty rough and sounded unnatural. I mean, people comment on the CGI in these prequel movies. I don't really care that much about that, to be honest. It doesn't distract me. So, like, I know it's not the best, but it it's fine. I do think that this movie would have benefited if Samuel L. Jackson got to say motherfucker in it. Oh, yeah. Which he did Every obviously doesn't get to, from to that. say that. He doesn't even have to be in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and I just was really excited that I got like a few minutes of my boyfriend, Kit Fisto, but not enough Kit Fisto. I mean, that could also be true of any other Star Wars movie, not enough Kit Fisto. That is absolutely yeah, true. Yeah, I think the only thing I think that has enough Kit Fisto is the original Clone Wars series, that like 2D animation one. Like That's kind of where I fell in love with him. Sam, is this movie good? Get these motherfucking Sith off this motherfucking planet. <laughs> The Emperor does not say totally during that speech. I just felt like it I was think a natural. adding it in was a, tr- I, a good line read, honestly. I think so. This is such a trash movie. As everyone knows, except for, uh, literally except for Elise at this point. Because you're <laughs> hearing it now. But in theory, if you're listening to this after you listen to the Phantom Menace episode, you know that as a result of watching it again for the first time after many years... And our discussion with Matt, I I like The Phantom Menace more than I did before. I mean, it still only results to a three-star max. But man, this movie just... I aggressively dislike this movie now. And, and really, the point is here, Anakin's a mass murderer. Padme's an enabler. That's what this movie tells us. What does it also tell us? It also tells us... That the Jedi are trash talkers. They talk about people behind their back. I don't like it when your workmates talk about you behind your back. And 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 yeah, I said workmates, but they're supposed to be family, except clearly they're not. It, and and ah, uh, there's a deleted scene in this movie that really tells tells you that even George Lucas knew he was going too far with the trash talking. And and by the way, you know. So they shouldn't be trash talking. They should, you know, do something to help out Anakin. Which, by the way, they can't do because their force powers are dying. Yes, they say all of those things are canon. All of those things are canon. Mr. Filoni, he of the hat, had to retcon. As Tessa, Tessa pointed out halfway through this, Filoni soft retconned so many things in this movie. Because otherwise, you just can't move on. We're supposed to root for Anakin? I don't think so, personally. Not to, like, get in the middle After of After he took out an entire tribe yeah, I mean, of I Tusken think Raiders. We're going to get into the, the Tusken Raider genocide no. here in a bit. But, no. yeah, I, I think that that is a big and, problem with this movie as well. And And, I mean, like, this all comes down... Okay, so the other thing is this all comes down to George Lucas. George Lucas knows how to write things, except no, he doesn't, and he knows it, because after The Phantom Menace, he had some trouble writing, and I think that trouble writing had something to do with everyone said his writing sucked. So he actually hired a co-writer, as Matt alluded to yesterday. He hired Jonathan Hales, 
who had written several episodes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, as I've said here, a in the notes, a famous television show that everyone has <laughs> totally seen and loves and reveres. I've seen most of it. Oh, you're going to hire that guy? The guy who writes that show? Seriously. This script is so bad that Jonathan Hales literally never worked in that town again. You know how people are like, you'll never work in this town? He didn't. That was the end of his career. And by the way, not only was the script bad, it took a long time to write. Rick McCallum's like, it's super cool getting a script less than a week before you shoot. So you haven't had time to build props yet. I mean, they hardly needed them with all the green screen. Anyway, my point is, this is a this is a bad movie. It's even worse when you when you really start to, as we talked about yesterday, start to view the film from the perspective of Anakin really got a raw deal because the Jedi Council are trash. If you start to view it from that, again, that improves the Phantom Menace. It makes Attack of the Clones worse. So my initial thoughts, I agree with actually both of you, is that I think there are good and bad things. This is definitely on the lower end of a Star Wars movie for me. It's, I don't, I'm not going to say it's the worst one because I, based on what I remember of the other ones, I think there is actually one that's worse than this, but it's definitely in contention for the worst one. I will say, uh, shout out back to Spooktober, Christopher Lee being in this movie, and the fact that his character is named Count, which is a clear reference and wink and nod towards his tenure as Dracula. I will say everything about Christopher Lee is great in this movie. Um, I will, we'll definitely talk about him a little bit later in some of the behind-the-scenes things as well. I think the real problem with this movie, and it became more and more clear as we started watching some of the ancillary information. Sorry. As we started watching some of the ancillary texts like The Clone Wars and From Puppets to Pixels, it's clear to me that Lucas cared more in this movie about the world building and making things look really cool and doing cool things with the new technology that he that was being developed, that he was developing, that his team was was working with, than he did about the story or the characters. I actually don't hate the CGI in this movie. I think I remembered it being worse than it actually is. I mean, there are a few moments where you're like, yeah, this is pretty bad CGI, but it's just not very inspired. And I don't think that good visuals make a good movie all the time. And the problems with the film in the characterization, in the lack of the actors having anything to act against because of the green screen, um, which makes the dialogue really stilted and and there's some really stiff performances in here. And the fact that none of these, it's the same problem with The Phantom Menace, only worse, which is there's not enough time for us to know anything about these people or what their motivations are or why they're doing what they're doing. So I'll reiterate what I did yesterday. I think the prequels would have been much better as either a series or a miniseries. And when we talk about the Clone Wars, we can get into more about why that is. But that would be my my take on this film. I It is not a good film. I think it could have been a good film, but it, it is not a good film. So that moves us to segment three. But really, is it good? Where we get to deep dive into some of these topics 
So uh, let's start off with the description that this film has on Disney+, Plus, which is simply Jedi Anakin falls in love with Padme, <laughs> which is like <laughs> such a strange way of describing this movie. But at the same time, it is sort of the main point of the movie, except Lucas doesn't seem to care about it at all. Elise, what did you think about the romance in this film? If this had a different writer-director, it could have been really hot. Like, Jedis are not supposed to have these kind of um, attachments, so, like, there's a whole forbidden love aspect to it. That's a lot to work with, you know? Like... Yeah. So It's a romance trope. Yeah, it goes... the, The movie goes from him being seen as, like, a little boy still by her to him making her uncomfortable with his advances to them being in love, like, in record time. Um, And I really do (laughs) think that aspect for me specifically, in addition to the part of the genocide stuff, would have benefited from slowing it down and making it more of a miniseries. So I really liked your idea that I thought that was a good would have been a good idea as well. There's a deleted scene that we watched today where Padme's sister is doing the dishes in the kitchen and Padme comes in and she was like, this is the first time you've ever bought a boyfriend over. And she's like, he's not my boyfriend. He's just a, you know, someone I've known since he was a kid. Dude, pick a lane. Is he a nine-year-old, like forever nine years old to him? Or do you love him two-thirds of a Savage Garden song? (laughs) Do you love him truly deeply? (laughs) What kind of dumbass wrote this? I have to say... The dialogue is really bad. When you wrote the deleted the scene thing... There's not the dialogue here, though. When you, when you wrote the deleted scene thing in the notes, I thought that was a joke. <laughs> no. Like, I didn't believe that really happened. <sighs> you know, the funny thing is, like, you can fix the Anakin thing by cutting out the part where he, like, rages and the line read. Like, it's so easy to fix that. You can't fix this. She just, like, she gives him, like, Davy Jones starry eyes the very first time she sees him in the movie. But meanwhile, Tessa's holding my arm saying he's a, she's about to say the worst thing that you could ever say to a guy. Or I think it's the worst thing you can say to anyone well, who sure. has a crush on you, which is, I'll always see you as that small child back on Tatooine. Like, it's the worst. That's like dagger to the heart. Yeah. Yeah. This is ridiculous. But yeah, like, Lucas is clearly more interested in his toys and doing the clones and the fight scenes and Obi-Wan doing his stuff than he is in this romance. And so this romance kind of devolves into a, like, oh, well, we have to get from point A to point B. Like, here's how we do it. There really needed to be a romance writer involved in this, I think. Because, like you said, Elise, it is a trope. Forbidden love is a trope. It is something that romance writers are very familiar with and very good at. I also think that this needed to be played more like Romeo and Juliet, which is a play that has the most clear parallels to what goes on in this particular film, because it is forbidden love between two very young people. I mean, Anakin is 19 
and he's been in love with her since he was nine. She's 24, which is slightly older. And, you know, she has a lot more experience in politics, perhaps. But she even admits in this film that she's not very relationship experienced. She only mentions one boyfriend that she's had before. And it was it was clearly not like a serious thing. And so, you know, this should be that like dramatic, messy electric like they say dumb things to each other Mm -hmm. you know like it should be that way it should be melodramatic it should be like this they feel all these feelings that they've never felt before and they don't know how to regulate and like it's somebody told them they shouldn't be together and you have to like build that kind of relationship you have to show us how it happens you can't just like smash two dolls together and say like they're together now I believe yesterday I may have misspoke when I said that... uh, I don't remember if I did or not. I might have said Lawrence Kasdan directed Empire Strikes Back. He didn't. Kirshner directed it. But Lawrence Kasdan wrote the script for Empire Strikes Back. So if you want to talk about a Star Wars love story, it's Empire Strikes Back is where you go. Mm -hmm. Because that is Han and Leia, right? And so to say, okay... This needs to have a romance writer attached to it. That would have been preferable. But Kasdan certainly wasn't a romance writer. He's best known for co-writing Empire, Return of the Jedi, The Big Chill, (laughs) (laughs) Raiders of the Lost Ark. But here's the thing. He also wrote The Bodyguard, remember? Yeah, where's that energy? Like, come on. But that's the thing. Kasdan came back when Disney asked him. He's credited as a co-writer on Force Awakens and Solo. It's not like he was busy. Right. Or wouldn't have made time for his pal George. You know, but that's the thing. Like, the the two people who wrote this didn't know shit about what they were talking about. And that might be more forgivable if we didn't have... That's the thing about these prequels, right? You have to compare them to what came before or after, depending on which perspective you're looking at. But I, oh, man. So I, I have I have three things. I'm going to pull a Sam and say I have three things. No, if it's a Sam, you say two things and, and then, then you, you say, say it's actually things. three. Okay. So the first thing is, just to go back to the Romeo and Juliet thing for a second, the other thing is they get married at the end of this film. A 19-year-old and a 24-year-old who said, I love you <laughs> less than like, Two days beforehand. Can droids legally be witnesses? <laughs> I, you know, I, I said I'm to my sure question. I did ask my dad if he thought they had to sign the if they had C three PO and R two signing the ketuba because in my joke, they how, were how, all does, uh, <laughs> how does R two sign things? Does he just use his little? I don't know. But yeah, like that is very Romeo and Juliet to me, right? Like these two young kids who like the everything's heightened because it's forbidden. And so they feel like they have to get married to like prove that they're always going to be together. You know what I mean? There's no reason that these two people need to get married. But like, you know, they do because it's like, you know, and so that I think is another really good parallel. The other thing, too, is from the bodyguard. What if Whitney Houston played Padme? (laughs) (laughs) That's all I can think of right now. You want to take the best part of the prequels out? No, I know. I'm just saying, like, I would have also watched Whitney Houston in a Star Wars. Okay, but Whitney Houston across from Hayden Christensen? Like, (laughs) no, Uh, thank you. No, that would not have worked. All all I can say is, is that the prequels were made in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. 
you'd, you'd better have Michael Jackson as Jar Jar, and Whitney Houston needs to be in there somewhere for yeah, sure. Yeah, if that was if made the that movie way, was made yeah. ten years earlier. That is absolutely true. The last thing I'll say, and this is just from like a filmmaking perspective. I was really, I really noticed it this time watching the scenes with them together. They're all very abruptly cut. Mm -hmm. Like it's very like they'll have a conversation and it doesn't even feel like the conversation's finished before suddenly there's a screen wipe and we're back to like the A storyline. And so it's, nothing feels finished. There's no sense of closure on any conversation that they have, which again, kind of contributes to this idea that like we don't understand how these characters are getting together, right? We don't understand how their relationship is blooming. It does not feel at all intentional that they're doing that. Like, I know that this all feels very rushed to us, but like, I don't think they meant to do it that way. I wanted to comment on the forbidden aspect of this and how... In the movie, they have the whole conversation about love and how Jedis are not supposed to fall in love. And Anakin has this idealistic view about how the Jedis are supposed to care about everyone. So I I don't remember the exact quote, but like he basically goes in to say how all we are are supposed to love everyone. We're just not supposed to form attachments. And it's funny to me. And I... That is how George Lucas would love for everyone to talk about the Jedi, like, in general. And I just think that this movie and this prequel series, in general, just show us how that is not true. And it just, I can't tell if, if it's, like, on purpose that it's so opposite of what actually is, or if, like, it's just, and like, he's, I love, I love Star Wars, and I, don't want to disrespect anyone, but, like, it just does not track with what I see about the Jedi. You don't love the kids. You don't teach them how to love. They go dark side and, like, murder lots of people and threaten the the entire galaxy. You raise your kid with love and respect and try to do right by him. They turn to the dark side, kills his dad, endangers the entire galaxy i guess in the star wars universe you just shouldn't have kids <laughs> is that the moral of the star that wars is the universe moral no of kids? the star wars story i mean because <laughs> i mean we have a 33 percent success rate here right anakin <laughs> goes bad luke okay kind of good and then ben holy shit so i definitely want to talk about the jedi and their policy about emotions and attachment when we talk about Anakin. But first, before we do that, I did want to talk a little bit about the politics of this film. We talked about that a lot yesterday with Matt in the Phantom Menace discussion. But I was really curious what you thought about what this film is saying politically, Elise, or if that was something that you noticed as you were watching the film. I mean, I definitely felt like it was the film was trying to say that I mean, in general, fascism is bad, like very vaguely, like, I mean, they do show and like, you know, you know, if you, it's hard for me to comment on what the movie means as someone who watched the original trilogy first versus someone who watched this movie right only after The Phantom Menace, because if you really went in spoiler free, you might not know what what happens later. But knowing that things are not going to go well in the future, 
it really does show how misguided everyone was. But I find it unbelievable that everyone that goes along with what happens in this movie went along with what happens in this movie. But yeah, I think it's vague and I think that it's just fascism is bad. Two things. So you start it, you start with two. I see. see. Two things. First, I know, and this is not me making a judgment of anybody. I just, when I say I cannot imagine, that's not a value judgment. I, I literally cannot imagine going into this prequel series having not seen the original trilogy. But people have. I understand that. My nephew. And, you know, I don't think it's the greatest strength, but it's up. So this is now three things. So the second thing is, this is now, I think, one of the best things about Star Wars. It's also the single worst thing about Star Wars, is that this story is told in every single way possible except in order. (laughs) there's always backfilling there's always expanding there's always well here's what happened during these two scenes and and that's why the retcon is such an important thing to stop talk about in the star wars universe Mm -hmm. not because of fan culture or its toxicity not because of this or that but just because when you tell this story or any story this out of order you're gonna fuck it up at some point and, and the thing that's really disappointing about this is, you know, the deal with Anakin's characterization is it's an unforced error on George Lucas. I know you want him to be Vader, but come on, dude, this is still, I can't, I can't feel sorry for him. And so, and I know we'll get more to that, but that's, that's an example. And so the third thing is we didn't talk about this yesterday but we we chose when we watch previously we have never started with the prequels you start with 77 my favorite is machete order to i kind love of be the like, machete you know empire ends with the big reveal now let's flash back and see how we got here before yep. we get to jedi and then i guess you just do the sequel trilogy whatever it doesn't matter this is the first time we went through in universe chronological order and it it does play very differently And one of the big reasons why is, as we talked about yesterday, I don't think the things that Matt, you know, Matt asked the question, are these things there or am I seeing them? And no, I I really think they're there. They're not there in episode two. He doesn't care about that anymore. I actually think he does. I think it just gets overwhelmed by all the other stuff that's going on because we do get this thing about Newt Gunray, who we talked about yesterday, and Matt believes is like a parallel for Newt Gingrich, which I think is the absolute best interpretation. Oh, of that I character. think that too. But we talk about how how he's just like never been imprisoned or punished for his crimes, despite like having been through several court systems because he's rich, and that's kind of like the thing that happens. And he's free enough to this point where he can start trying to assassinate Padme again, and. We get Dooku talking about how the corruption of the Senate can't be just fixed, right? You have to, like, burn the whole thing down and start over. I think the problem is, is that, like everything else in this film, it doesn't really get explored in any kind of nuanced way. Like, we need to see more of Dooku's side of the story in this film, which we saw a little bit in Tales of the Jedi, which we talked about yesterday. But this particular film 
it needs and you have Christopher Lee like you could do this like you could have him talk about the issues in the in the Senate you could have him talk about the issues in the Republic and all of these these problems that Dave Filoni becomes more interested in later but you don't it's just we're supposed to take his word for it that this is just something that's a problem okay the reason I said that a minute ago was that in the second movie, George Lucas has moved on to making sure things fit with the original trilogy. Right. That yeah. was my original point about watching okay, it first. Okay, I gotcha. And the reason I know this is Newt Gunray is no longer Newt Gingrich in episode two. Yeah. He's actually Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's like, <laughs> oh, look, look, that thing's going to kill Padme, right? Like yeah. Newt Gingrich didn't fundamentally, well, he might have. But he didn't fundamentally come across as somebody who wanted you to fucking die and suffer. Right. Newt Gingrich would have never said kill all the... Right. Yeah. And and that's the character that Newt Gunray has become in episode two. That's why I know George Lucas isn't doing what he was doing He's like in trying to one. pivot. Well, the other thing that he's concerned about politics-wise is... The prequels are very interested on ha- in how fascism comes to be and like, what are the conditions that have to exist in order for fascism to happen. We talked about this a teeny bit yesterday, but I think this film, without actually doing a good job of talking about it, um, does actually introduce us to this idea that fascists, as exemplified by Palpatine, who is someone we also didn't really talk about a whole lot yesterday, he... They're very good at creating phantom, to use that word, enemies in order to get people to give up their freedom um, for the sake of security. So the whole point of this film is that this is a fake war, right? It's a real war in the sense that people actually die during it, but it's a fake war in the sense that it is manufactured by Palpatine and by Dooku in order to give Palpatine more power, in order for him to consolidate more power and to say, look, those people, they're going to kill you and they're going to they're going to endanger our democracy. Like, I need to take control just so I can protect it. You know, and that's a very, very common fascist playbook um, to, to do. And so, again, I don't think that he makes this point especially well here because it's not clear until the end of the movie what's going on. But... I do think that it's an interesting question that he's bringing up, a question that I think is explored more deeply in The Clone Wars, which, I mean, you can say that about anything in this movie, that it's explored more deeply in The Clone Wars. So you said that you were interested in, you know, more of his perspective, and there was like an audio drama called Dooku Jedi Lost. Oh, sorry. It's by Kevin Scott, who is like a pretty co- like known uh, Star Wars book or novel writer, novel writer, you know, what we call a novelist <laughs> uh, words. <laughs> Basically, it's like kind of a flashback. So he, he he's like the narrator. At, he's having a conversation. And because it's like audio drama, it's not like he said, she said kind of thing. It's very um, people just start talking. So it's like a full cast. I don't remember what the like current story was in the drama but the flashbacks were really to his time um with the jedi and what leads to him leaving the jedi order and it's interesting because it's really just he saw he had like 
had access to his home planet and sees that his that's his family is not doing so great or some there's some drama i don't need to get into the specifics but basically the jedi won't help and his his home planet and he just i think gets very it's a wake up call for him that he that these people are not trying to help everyone like who decides who's worth fighting for and who's worth helping and who's not. Um, And it just, it makes me think about how the Jedi work so closely with the Senate and it just, it feels like a separation of church and state issue to me almost. I mean, I know not all of the people in the Republic are, you know, the Jedi religion as it is called uh, at at some points in the series. Um, But it just feels weird to me that this group is so aligned with um, a political group. Well, and they keep calling themselves peacekeepers in this film, but they also, this is also the process of how they become militarized. Right. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the genocide in the room. (laughs) Let's talk about Anakin Skywalker. So he is obviously played by Hayden Hayden Christensen in this because Jake Lloyd obviously didn't age 10 years in the gap between Phantom Menace and this film. Not on the outside. Not on the outside, probably on the inside. Sam, why don't you talk about Anakin? What do we think about Hayden Christensen's performance? What do we think? We've already started to talk about it a little bit, but what do we think about this portrayal of this character? I mean, to borrow a phrase from Nigel, and we're supposed to root for him? (laughs) Nigel, who's never seen a Star Wars. I don't know. I think Hayden Christensen got a bad deal. Oh, I agree. I really do. I have no idea if he's a good actor or not. I I am glad he got... I hope his redemption tour is long and fruitful. I hope that his reappearance in Obi-Wan is just a tease of things to come. I think he he was done... He was done dirty. Portman was done dirty. You know, I, I think that a lot of people who had to work in this show, especially around the Anakin story... You find yourself liking Anakin during the Clone Wars. And then you uh, every so often it's like, oh no, I can't like, oh God, am I Padme now? Like, I did I just forget that, that he got mad one day and slaughtered an entire tribe? Not just the adults, but the women and the children. They're like animals, so he killed them like animals? Let's not forget. And Which I, is a characterization a lot of people use before con- committing genocide. Uh, I, mm, it's bad. It's really bad. And if that happened a week before he went Sith, I mean, who am I to rewrite things? But like, if Padme had been killed by some squad of people, not Tusken Raiders, but some squad of people a week after Luke and Leia were born... And then he killed them all. I would A, understand that. And B, see that it makes narrative sense. And C, would totally see how we got to Darth Vader. But that, I think as Elise points out in the notes, should have happened way after the Clone Wars. Yep. Like that should not have... This 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 happens too early, which I know is something you said. As well when we were watching the movie. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that a little bit when we get to Clone Wars later in a later segment. 
I think right now we should be seeing his anger because there's a lot of mm-hmm. legitimate things for him to be angry about. And we should see maybe hints that that anger is destructive. But I think this is way too soon in the development of the character, especially because then we're supposed to forget it and like, oh, yeah, they're, they're in love, you know, <laughs> like and and we're just supposed to like skip over that stuff. You're the you're the closest thing I had to a dad. My mom's dead. I have a stepfather and a stepbrother and Padme loves me as a child or as a man. I don't fucking know anything anymore. Yeah, this is a very inconsistent <laughs> characterization, I think, of this character. Elise, what what are your thoughts on how this character is in this film? Very childlike. And I think part of that is intentional, but I do think I do think some of the um direction that he was probably given make it a little bit too much. Um, it was really funny. I was watching this with my mom yesterday and she was like, how old is he supposed to be? And I was like, I didn't remember, but I was like 19 um, when I, you know, I looked it up and it just feels like he had no childhood. I mean, we've talked about this, you know, the Jedi rip you from your parents. Yeah. And I just feel like he's just so whiny. <laughs> but, you know. And he was a slave as a child, too. That's not a normal childhood. Well, there's a scene. There's a scene where Yoda is teaching the younglings. And so, yeah, Ahsoka, everybody else was taken away, didn't have parents. But you know who they did have? Wise, cracking Uncle Yoda. Yeah. And like, yeah, I know he was a class teacher, but this is... Uh, and, and I will retroactively or I proactively, well, it's going to happen in the future. I will defer to our, uh, 19th century Victorian boys school narrative expert, Losbert to talk about, basically you do have those paternal or possibly maternal attachments that happen inside the school system instead of with your parents. And we see that with Yoda. Anakin gets cheated out of anything because first he was the slave, but then he gets taken away from his mom at a different time than everybody else was. So he didn't get that, but he also didn't get the benefit of, of, of you know, Uncle Yoda, who, who seems like a really good teacher in that scene. Yeah, I think the other issue, we talked yesterday about the problematic way in which Shmi is just left for dead, I guess. And we can talk about that a little bit if we want. But there are legit traumas that Anakin has gone through in his childhood in order to get to the Jedi Temple. Nobody seems willing to actually help him through those traumas. Instead, it just seems to be like, oh, you'll forget about it. In fact, Obi-Wan actually says, well, dreams fade with time, which why would you say that to someone who's like worried about their mom? He didn't have one. Because he didn't have one, I guess. I don't know. Like, So this will come up especially in the next one as well, but I think that one of the huge problems with the Jedi is that they refuse to actually admit that having emotions, whether considered positive or negative emotions, is something that just happens. They prefer to say you need to suppress those emotions or pretend that they don't happen instead of learning how to process those emotions in a healthy way. And I know that, like, Sam, you brought up 
We've tried nothing, and we're all out of ideas. (laughs) Yeah, there's a great scene where Yoda's like, Anakin's in pain, and then it's like, does nothing about it. Anyway. It's it's the references to Ned Flanders uh, (laughs) when his beatnik parents take him to the the psychologist, and they're like, we don't know, man, because they don't believe in, like, discipline or parenting or anything. I pretty much... I was fascinated, though, Sam, because uh, yeah. we were talking about thing. this and because I was sitting there going, OK, like people get angry, like everyone gets angry at some point. But the point of growing up or the point of learning emotional regulation is that you can take that anger and process it or direct it to do uh, constructive things. Right. Ne- anger is not always a negative emotion. Sometimes it can help you actually change things that need to be changed, et cetera. Or you learn how to regulate it. Generally, the response should not be when you get angry over something legitimate to kill an entire tribe of people. Like that is not an appropriate response to have when you experience anger. But the thing is, is that I don't think Anakin has ever been taught how to appropriately respond to that anger. Nobody has ever taught him how to regulate it because whenever he gets angry, they just say, you need to learn how to control that. You need to learn how to like shove it down, right? Like that's all he's been taught. And so this is where I see the real problem with the Jedi is, is that they don't respect the fact that humans are humans. They don't respect the fact that emotions are part of being a living being and that you have to learn how to process them. And so when you, when I look at Anakin, I agree with you, Elise, I see a child because I see a child who's never been taught how to, how to handle anything, how to handle any of his emotions that he has. He is a child who is a Superman. Which, yes. And that occurred to me in the moment when you were talking about that in the movie. I said, he needs a Pa Kent. He needs a Jonathan Kent. From the very first episode of Smallville, John Schneider, Bo Duke himself, is, is characterized as somebody who has to teach this person who can destroy anything and anybody anytime he wants. He raised that kid through puberty. <laughs> And if it wasn't for red kryptonite, he would have been fine. <laughs> you know, that that is a that, you know, and and I I think I've tried to block out as much as possible, but I believe Shouldercock Cable Superman also has a a reference. I think it's I want to say it's in the Zack Snyder Justice League because they're at the farm at some point and he makes he makes a comment, a very similar comment about his dad in that version too, which is Kevin Costner. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> that seems like so long ago. Well, but but I mean, the thing about it is, is that this is something we know well. This is very well-worn territory. Is that if the strongest person in the universe can be the strongest person in the universe, they have to, and now I'm just going to hop over to Marvel take the responsibility of having that power. And, you know, the Jedi, that, that's really the problem. They don't teach responsibility. Or critical thinking either, I guess, because there are several scenes in this where I'm like, it seems well, kind of obvious what the answer is. Why aren't you, you thinking this, this through? <laughs> Do monks have creative thinking? I mean, I think that's the real question about the Jedi. Because they don't seem they to are. have it. Yeah. And they don't seem to have a lot of empathy, especially for an order, like you said, 
Elise that's supposed to have compassion because they don't act like a community. They don't support each other. They don't help each other through hard times. They just say, well, this is the way that you're, you should react. But there's no, like, support. And I really loved, Sam, you pointed out the scene before he confesses to genocide to Padme. You pointed the scene out where he's trying to fix things. And oh, so I, I still haven't really said the thing you wanted me to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting point. <laughs> oh, man. My initial draw to this character was I, I did want to root for this character. I really did. And I can tell you why. It's a thread that uh, George Lucas really, he's thought about it because he lays it down in The Phantom Menace in a very subtle way and then picks it back up in a very ham-handed way in episode two. Anakin is an engineer. He's an excellent mechanic. He knows how, uh, he would be a great mechanical engineer. He teaches Ahsoka how to, basically Ahsoka has engineering skill because Anakin taught it to her. Which, by the way, Anakin is a way better teacher than Obi-Wan. That I was think another that's, question I was going to ask. That's just crazy talk, but it's true. He he builds that pod racer, and you know the their home is filled with just... If you've ever lived with an engineer, and I grew up with one, it, that's what it looks like. Uh, all the stuff they're going to fix and work on when they have time. But in Attack of the Clones, he talks to Padme, and he tells her, I've always been good at fixing things and that's the thing and and you know when you're and and this is somebody you know Anakin has great anger management issues when you're always around broken things because they were broken for you when you were young or because you're breaking them now that affinity with fixing things with repairing things becomes I mean it's it's a survival tactic it's the only way you can get by and it's really sad that Anakin doesn't know another way to live. He doesn't know what it's like to always be coming from behind, to always be trying to repair things, to never having anything nice. So he's he's figured out the best way to do things. And it's just, it, to me, that's really, that's really heartbreaking. But it doesn't matter because of the Tusken Raider thing. It doesn't matter. The Tusken matter. Raider thing, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously horrible. And Padme, <laughs> Padme is... I, I mean, again, like I, it just doesn't make sense that she's suddenly like, oh yeah, that's fine. Like we can still be together. Yeah. Despite you admitting that to me, she's so much more level-headed than he is, a hundred percent of the time. Besides, or well, I guess ninety-nine percent of the time, that it's completely unbelievable to me that she's like, okay, it's so out of character. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It only makes sense from like a plot perspective if you know. That they have to end up together. Yeah. It doesn't make sense from a character perspective. It feels like a very sloppy, oh, I'll do anything for love. And that's why we have Nazi romances, ladies and gentlemen. Gross. So I was, I'm was. i glad you brought this up, Sam, because I really wanted to talk about it. Is Obi-Wan a good teacher? Elise, what do you think? He could possibly have been a good teacher to a different student. I think because... Anakin was taken from his mother at a much older age than most um, younglings are. He needs different things as a student than other 
than the other um, kids would need. Um, I also think that the intention was that Qui-Gon Jinn was going to be his teacher, and he obviously died. So Obi-Wan is kind of stuck with him. Um, I mean, I don't. I think they genuinely care for each other a lot at, at this point anyway. But um, it just feels like I don't think any of the Jedi would have been taught how to teach someone in this situation. So I don't know if it's really a failing of Obi-Wan or a failing of the Jedi changing the rules for this one person. That's absolutely fair. Sam, what do you think? No, he, he's not. He's definitely not a good teacher. As I said, I think, I think Yoda might be a better teacher than he is Jedi Council member. <laughs> I, I, would, I would really believe that. He was that. very sweet with the little kids. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing about it is, is I think the same thing applies to Luke. I don't think Anakin needed a teacher. I, I think what he needed was a father. And, and what it reminds me of, and he, and he says, you know, Lucas and, you know, Lucas writes from that line about you're the closest thing I've had to a father. But what it reminds me of is there's a line in Serve the Servants that Kurt Cobain wrote. I mean, he wrote the whole song. Uh, he wrote all the songs. But he said, uh, I tried hard to have a father, but instead I had a dad. That's what's happening here is that he needed Jonathan Kent and... Luke needed that and Ben needed that. It's funny that all three of them, they didn't really need teachers. I mean, Ben had a teacher. Anakin had a teacher. Luke had a teacher for like a week. Um, <laughs> and he's the one who turned out the best. Yeah. So I think that really ought to tell you something. It's so not only is Obi-Wan not a good teacher, that's absolutely what he should not have been. And I don't think Qui-Gon would have been either. I I don't want to get super into Luke's storyline because that's like a, a later thing. But I will say Luke actually did have a father, which might be why he turned out the best. Anyway. There's a book called Master and Apprentice by Claudia Gray. And it's about when Obi-Wan was Qui-Gon Jinn's Padawan. And, and is a lot about the teaching method that he and how different they are. Obi-Wan was very rigid in it. And... Qui-Gon Jinn was not, and he was a little more go with the flow, and the teaching style was very interesting, and I just, I'm not going to say anything else, but it's it was a really good book, if that is something that interests you. I do want to read that book. Also, he had a stepfather. Very different. But the stepfather raised him since he was a baby. He is his father. No, no, no you're right. You're, I, I think you're of absolutely right. all of them, right. he actually had a father figure. Anyway, that, again, that's later. Do we think Qui-Gon would have been a better teacher for Anakin? I think he would have been a much better teacher for Anakin because I think he thinks outside of the box more than... He's a little more roguish than Obi-Wan is, and he wouldn't... He would... It would be more important for him to get to where you need to be in the end than to do it the the right way or whatever. Is it is it neutral good? Hmm. Yeah, I right. Think I don't so. think he's chaotic good. I think no, he's, he's neutral. neutral I think Anakin. I think Anakin wanted to be chaotic good. Yeah, I agree with that. But but um, just remember, as I told you yesterday, Tessa Qui Gon has a very special set of skills <laughs> that he would have used. So that is also true. <laughs> 
I I just want to say two things. One, I agree with you. I don't think Obi-Wan is a good teacher. And I can tell you that he's not a good teacher because in the very first scene where he and Anakin are on screen together, he tells him something. He tells Anakin something that is clearly rote memorization from like the Jedi handbook. And Anakin asks him why. And Obi-Wan is not only surprised that Anakin would ask him why, but also doesn't have an answer as to why. And Sam, what do we call it when we give a student an assignment that we can't answer the reason why? We call it my childhood. No, really. No, I mean, it bad. Busy work. Stupid. It's busy work. It doesn't mean anything. And they know. They know when that's true. But they also know, as you asked me to talk about yesterday... The fact that they know Anakin is somebody who will always ask you why, who will always find the loophole in the assignment. He would have cheated on the Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, absolutely. He. Oh man. Oh my God. He's Anakin a Kirk. meets Kirk. <laughs> oh, what would that be like? It just came to me. <laughs> it's true. Well, Kirk could definitely teach Anakin some tips on game. That's I, for sure. I think <laughs> yes, Anakin I would, would have think also, so. like me, called it the Kobayashi Circle. Yeah, he probably <laughs> would have called it that. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to say too, and this occurred to me actually just yesterday when we were watching the Phantom Menace, Obi-Wan isn't that much older than Anakin. Like he was, when he, when the Phantom Menace happens, he is like 20 years old. So to me, it makes sense that he's not that father figure to Anakin because he's more like a sibling than he is like a father. And so that's like part of the issue, I think. I feel like if we didn't have to have Obi-Wan as Anakin's teacher really to like fit the story they would have just assigned him to someone more experienced that since Qui-Gon Jinn had died well since we are talking about Obi-Wan now how do we feel about Obi-Wan who has the majority of the rest of the adventure besides the romantic quest I love it and this is my (laughs) favorite part of this movie and why I love this movie I love a mystery I can't stop singing Private eye, watching you. (laughs) I guess nobody else but Tessa knows, but I have called this movie Obi-Wan Private Detective since, when did this movie come out? 2002? (laughs) Like, that has been my joke. I mean, other people have made the joke, but like, this has been a joke I've carried with me for uh, the better part of two decades now. I... (laughs) It is. If you could totally, if you could forget about the love story and just focus on Obi-Wan Private Detective, yeah, this would be a much better movie. (laughs) You know, I read some things that compared this storyline to Bond, actually, saying that he kind of is fulfilling like a more Bond-like role in this. And they also compared the scene at the beginning where they try to assassinate Padme with the bugs through the window yeah. to that scene in Doctor yeah, No. Yeah, for sure. Which were not connections I made while watching it, but I think it's fascinating. No, I didn't catch that on my own either. Um, I love that since I love Bond. <laughs> I do like all the chase scenes in this movie. So, you know, they're obviously they're protecting sen- now Senator Amidala. And it's really funny because Anakin does that whole, oh, yeah, we'll find out who's behind this uh, plot to kill you. And Obi-Wan the whole time's like, that's not what we were hired. He doesn't use the word hired, but in my mind, that's not what we were hired to do. <laughs> and he, because of that dart that they find 
they ends up he ends up being the only one going on that journey to find out <laughs> what happened and it just makes me laugh because he at the beginning he was like I'm just not I'm not I'm not getting involved in that aspect of this and then he immediately has to get involved in that aspect of it Anakin you can't be sent off on something on your own and be you know trusted to decide the parameters of the mission yourself that's not what the Jedi do five minutes later you want me to go off by myself and make up the parameters of the mission as I go <laughs> I don't see any problem with that. I, 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 my irony detector is is uh, uh, it's nothing. I think that's fine. R two D two is like smoking, <laughs> like like about to blow his top over in the corner. The funny part about that to me is they still give Anakin his own mission, and that goes to shit because he falls in love and gets married to her. So like they probably should. And then have... has a dream about mom. Yeah, they probably should have kept someone. It goes to shit two ways. <laughs> they probably should have um kept someone with Anakin that whole time. <laughs> I mean, they did. They did send somebody responsible with him. The person he was guarding. Yeah, uh, Padme is supposed to be the responsible one. I do love how in this movie it establishes the idea that sometimes they're bad influences on each other, yes. which I really appreciate. Yeah. I wish that that would have been played up a little bit more. That could have been so good. I know. That was one of the better parts, um, especially when they go to like rescue um, Obi-Wan. And he's like, We're, I'm supposed to be protecting you or whatever. And she's like, well, I'm going to go uh, save Obi-Wan so you can protect me while I'm doing that. Like that whole bit was really <laughs> amusing to me. It's big Han and Leia energy. What did we think of Padme's storyline in this? She, I felt because she had to just be protected the whole time. She was just completely sidelined. And then they just had Jar Jar Binks like fuck up her job, basically. <laughs> You know, I, I said earlier that, that he could have hired Lawrence Kasdan to write this, but, you know, but but did he? Is this just not the bodyguard? I, well, no, that's what we were saying <laughs> earlier. Yeah. I mean, yeah, all she I mean, but that's the thing, right? Acting is acting is acting and reacting. All she does in this movie is react until she has a better she, until she gets to do green screen action, right? Yeah, until she's like, fuck it, we're going after Obi-Wan. At least there's that. Would this movie have been better if Anakin died at the end? <laughs> <laughs> That's all. Perhaps, perhaps. This actually just reminded me, though, you know how earlier you talked about that that line? It actually gets repeated twice in the film about Anakin saying he's like a father to me or mm-hmm. you're like a father to me. This time watching it, that line so- reading sounded very sarcastic. Like, I don't know if you all heard that, but he was like, don't talk about that, master. You're like a father to me. It doesn't sound sincere at all. That's, 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 uh, that, uh, I'm sorry. I know to the untrained ear, that's what it sounds like. But from the generation of disaffection over here, I will tell you that's what it is. He's saying it ironically. Well, no, I, I understand I, no, I don't, that. It's not sarcastic. No, I understand that. I'm just saying, like, I don't actually think he thinks Obi-Wan is like a father to him like that to me is not their relationship oh i don't agree at all i think he does no well either then obi-wan's a shitty father then or that's Anakin what I doesn't said. know what a father's supposed to be like i said that play back the yeah, tape i don't yeah anyway play back matter. the entire message i i agree with both of you i actually do think she's kind of a badass in this movie especially in the last act oh, and yeah. i was just like where's been this person the entire movie like why didn't she fight off her own like attacker at the beginning anyway 
That's she was just asleep. Like, she was asleep. I Come did on. enjoy <laughs> her getting out of her handcuffs in the gladiator pit. That was awesome. So fast. But I uh, I do think that a lot of her character arc is relegated to being the romantic lead. And I also found it really gross that there are two separate scenes in this where decisions about her, where her character should go and what she should do are made by men in the room without her input. So, like, the first time it happens is at the very beginning where she's like, I almost died, but I'm here for this vote that's really important. And literally all the men in the room are like, you should go back to Naboo. <laughs> Like they're very like like she's standing right there yeah. and they're like talking about like what she should do. And then the second time it happens is the Jedi Council basically decide that Anakin should go back with her and that she should definitely go. And she's not even there. Like they make this decision without her being yeah. there, which is horrifying. To be a politician is to campaign and then when you win you don't get to do the things you campaigned on because everybody else decides what you have to do, right? I mean, that's one of the problems that's going on right now is that there are people who are like, I'm just going to do what I want. And all the Democrats are like, oh, you can do that? Oh, I didn't know. I thought we had to talk about it in a committee. Yeah, the, the, the line read from <laughs> right. Phantom Menace, committee. But that's the, but that's the point, right? I mean, yeah. like, actually, she's super used to that happening. Yeah, because I, it happened when she was a queen and it happened when she was a senator. This is just Tuesday. Right. I think it's just so blatant in these two scenes that like what she thinks doesn't matter. And because it's all men talking, it just becomes super it like very much highlights that, I think. And I, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was Pop Culture Happy Hour where they were talking about how one of the issues with the end of Game of Thrones, one of the issues with the end of Game of Thrones is that all the conversations about Daenerys being crazy happen between men in rooms that she's not in. And the idea is, is that that's like what women are afraid of is that men are talking about them in rooms like where they're not involved. And to me, that's kind of what this reminded me of this idea that they're like making all these decisions and she's not even, she even says no. And it's like, they ignore her and just like, Talk over her completely. Men know so, best. Yeah. You should know that. Men by know now. best. And the man who knows the best is, of course, Supreme Chancellor Palpatine, played by Ian McDermott. We did not talk about him very much yesterday, but we get to see a little bit more of him in this film. And as you said, Elise, Jar Jar actually hands him a lot more power that he wanted. And all I could think about during that scene where he's talking to his aide and they're like, who would do, who would be brave enough to do such a thing? And I, I kind of had this thing in my mind where I'm like, did they practice that? Were they like, no, that's still too, that's too subtle. He's not going to get it. You have to like, say it like really clear for Jar Jar. Oh, I'm sure <laughs> that that was uh, orchestrated. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. What do we think about Palpatine as a character and Ian McDermott's performance? I think that he's a treasure. In the documentary from yesterday, they were talking about people doing good work in a scene. And somebody was like, well, what about Ian McDermott? And I was like, he's fine. He's, he's a professional. He, he's, he's, I mean, like, he always does it right. Yeah. No notes. Yeah. Well, I just think it's interesting that he kind of vacillates between harmless old man and like on a dime can turn sinister. Like, it's just such an interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge, I think, for an actor to be able to, to play this character. And I think he does a great job. 
The other scene that stuck out to me is the one scene that he interacts with Anakin, where he's obviously taken on this role of mentor in Anakin's life. And he's the only one that projects the idea that he actually cares about him, which I think makes him makes Anakin more susceptible yeah. to, to him. What did you all think about that scene? I agree with you. And I think it, I'm not an expert on this, but I've talked with, I've read from um, like victims of domestic abuse or just even manipulation. And it's very common to isolate someone and make them feel that you're the only one that cares about them and that they need you. And you're, you almost create, make that person feel like an island and, you're the only one that can fix all of their problems. Yeah, and he even says it like that. Like, the Jedi don't see, you know, you, your potential. They're holding you back. You know, you're going to become greater than them. Yeah. Like, it is interesting that we talk about how Anakin needs a dad. I think Palpatine knows that. Yeah. And I think Palpatine is, like, positioning himself that way. Totally. In order to manipulate him. And I think Anakin's susceptible to it because the Jedi aren't paying attention. Okay, the the other thing that comes up a lot in this is Yoda fight. Cool or not? <laughs> yeah. The Yoda fight is cool. Sure. Only possible because we have, for the first time, a CGI Yoda mm. instead of a puppet Yoda. Okay, first of all, the Yoda fight in the next movie is much better. Second, I don't care. It's cool. I don't care. By the way, much cooler, dude can absorb force lightning that was really cool I, and and i almost was very tempted to keep a running list of jedi powers that are pretty much retconned uh there's force dash in phantom menace and then there's whatever this is in the second movie and i know what you're thinking it's not retconned it's just yoda's the only person cool enough to do that i would respond yoda's not cool pick a different adjective <laughs> but sure when I saw this movie in the theater, I don't specifically remember like sitting there, but I do remember that I was like, holy shit, that was awesome. And now I just love to hate on it because it's so the difference between Yoda fighting and like Yoda walking normally where he has his little cane and he just like is a little slow and cute. It must take him a lot of energy, force energy to fight, but it just the difference between those two things is wild to me. There's a game, and I don't remember which game it is, but if you play as Yoda, he bounces. Because <laughs> like he, he walks too slow. Yeah. He can't walk. It's only when he's using the force to yeah. parkour can he actually move. <laughs> That's funny. Right? Or sorry, I believe the technical term for what he's doing here is free running. <laughs> Apologize. Don't write to us about that one. Uh, uh, my producer is giving me a sign. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's a little ridiculous. But I agree with Sam that the one in the next film is better. I will say that the other thing that I loved about this is that obviously Yoda is a disabled icon, always uses his cane, but we do get to see him using a different mobility device in this where he's floating along (laughs) next to them on the the I kind of loved that. I know. Don't, you know, just because you don't, just because you don't need the mobility device, use it if it's going to make your life better. Yeah. So you know what? If you need that, you use it. Yeah. I have to say that the amount of like kind of 
groaning and grunting and the way that he moves a lot of the time, because he's supposed to be very old, right? Uh, makes me think that he is actually in a lot of pain. Like he does yeah. have like chronic pain issues. So yeah. it would make sense that like he wouldn't walk all the time. Makes sense to me. I love that. that they Either that or he's just house. <laughs> it is funny to me because when he's like on that little hover chair, it, they're doing like a walk and talk. And I'm like, it's very like West Wing or something. Okay. Well, you're going to, oh man. So that's two in a row, Tessa. Let's see if somebody stumbles into a Sorkin reference next time. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to hear the episode from oh, yesterday. Oh, it's Ryan. There's a damn Sorkin. good chance. Yeah. I, <laughs> I will not say anything. We will true. give no hints. We will see what happens. So one thing that I wanted to mention that I found absolutely hilarious in an ironic sort of way is that the beginning of this, the reason why Padme is being targeted is because she is like the leader of the opposition to creating a Republic army. Like she does not want the Republic to become militarized. But when the Jedi find a ready-made clone army that was made under mysterious circumstances, they just accept it. They're like, all right, I guess this, this is our army now. <laughs> Yoda vetted it while they were doing the whole gladiator thing. Like he went over and gave it a really good audit once over Brought shock tea with him. It was fine. Don't worry about it. I felt very like, yeah, like what were they like inspecting the clones for like an hour? Like, um, by the way, that was wild. I was just thinking really fast that shock tea is like, like iced tea. Yeah, shock tea. So shock tea could be like, you mean to tell me? Yeah. Absolutely. I would watch that show, like the police procedural show. Oh, oh. <laughs> so Shock T is that character. Yes, that I could funny. absolutely see that. I think knowing Clone Wars, I appreciate the Jedi in the background more now because I yeah. know who they are. Yes. So like that's that's really fun. Too. I was very but like yeah, you... Leo pointing when Plo Koon was on the screen. I was like, it's a Plo Koon. Yeah, and like, my parents oh, are like, who the fuck is. is that? Yeah. But I also did that for Kit Fisto, my boyfriend. I also love, too, when Obi-Wan reports back to them about the clone army that he's like, it's, they said that the Jedi ordered it. And you can just see this look between Mace Windu and Yoda where they're like, we're not paying for that. <laughs> like, we didn't order it. Charge I back. Is, charge back. I, in my, in my headcanon, um, it got paid for in advance. <laughs> it, yeah. was like a, it was like a lay, like you had to like, like maybe yeah, there yeah, was yeah. like a layaway or something on those clones. When Obi-Wan goes to Kamino and meets the cloner, the cloners, um, and meets, he meets Jango Fett, who is the uh, basis for these clones, and he asks, you know, who, who, where did, who ordered this? And they say, they specifically say, um, someone named Sifo Diaz, which in the moment, I'm like, Okay, that is a fake name because we don't know anyone with that name. In an earlier version of the script, Obi-Wan did not know that name and said and said so or like said so to like the Jedi Council. So it was supposed to be uh, this fake name originally. And it's funny that they eventually and th- this happens in Clone Wars and it's a- also in the audiobook that I that I talked about earlier like they they make Sifo-Dyas as a character and it's very unnecessary to me I would have much more enjoyed it if it was just a fake name I was 12 when this movie came out and 
I was so confused at this because when he says Master Sifo-Dyas has been te- dead for 10 years, all I could think about was Qui-Gon, who had also been dead for 10 years at this point. And it just seemed like such a random number that for a while I actually thought he was talking about Qui-Gon. Like, very confusing history for me around Master Sifo-Dyas. Yeah, I was a very strange, nerdy child. I've just... I'll put it that way. Anyway. And you grew up to be a very strange, nerdy adult. Pretty much. Pretty much. Did I tell you that uh, my parents, I think it was for Revenge of the Sith, actually. They went to go see a movie. It wasn't Revenge of the Sith. It was a different movie. And they were going into the theater, and it was the midnight release of Revenge of the Sith. And there was a whole line of people in costume, you know, because this was before you reserved seats. And my mom leaned over to my dad and said, I don't want Tessa hanging out with those kind of people. And my dad was like, honey, Tessa is those kind of people. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it. Did your mom, like, I'm like curious what your mom thought they were like up to. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what she yeah. thought. Elise, you did note, you put in the notes a really interesting thing because we talked a lot in fa- The Phantom Menace about some of the like soft callbacks or call forwards or whatever you want to call them um, in The Phantom Menace. You pointed out that there are several things in this film that seem to be reminiscent of things from Empire. It's just a couple little things. I felt um, Camino reminded me of Cloud City a little bit. It was raining. It was in the clouds. I mean, they, those were floating uh, floating buildings. So visually and thematically, like, our friends go to this Cloud City place and find out shit's fucked up. Like, that, that aspect felt very <laughs> similar. And then um, this one was more of just a comedic one. The fact that C-3PO gets, like, taken apart and, like, put together a little incorrectly. Um, If you, like, in Empire it happens and, like, you know, not to get too far into that, but, like, Chewie's wearing him at that one scene. Um, But here, you know, he, his head gets put on one of the droid robots and (laughs) vice versa, a droid robot head is on his. And it's just very funny to me how his voice saying the robot thing but also then his voice saying his own thing like wait what am i saying and i'm like where is the brain in this droid i don't understand how does this work exactly (laughs) yeah Uh, i really need like a how does this work episode on on that on droids yes um there was one other uh, original trilogy reference that i noticed and it's at the very beginning when they're in the club and obi-wan cuts off the arm of the oh, right. would-be assassin which feels very much like a new hope yeah so, for sure that was the and other thing always... i had never noticed that before yeah outside of that club by the way there are on the little sign above the club that you can kind of see in the corner there's uh, two headshots or like neon e headshots of it's uh, the the species the upside down triangle head from the cantina Moss Eisley, and then another one of the species that's the band uh, the cantina. Oh yeah, band. yeah. So yeah, those are both there as well. I wanted to live on Coruscant when I saw this movie um, the first time. I just thought it, which is so funny because I'm like, I love the city, but like not that, not that much. It not, just not felt that much really, <laughs> yeah, it just felt really cool and happening. And I just loved the floating, um, 
It actually almost reminds me a little bit of The Fifth Element. It's hard not to watch this and think about The Fifth Element, which I'm sure is something that Lucas had seen. And Lucas obviously takes a lot of inspiration from sci-fi film, so that makes sense to me. I asked Sam this question. If you were in the gladiator pit with Padme, Obi-Wan, and Anakin, which of the three monsters would you rather go up against? The fuzzy one, because I would want to hug it. The the fuzzy cat kitty one? The kitty one with the rat tail, I guess? Which one would you want to go up against? The the rhino looking one. The rhino one. I feel like the spider crab one is just too creepy. Yeah. Um let's move on to segment four. Meanwhile, somewhere that isn't Tatooine, where we're going to talk about the Clone Wars and the episode two documentary from Puppets to Pixels. I think it's fairly well documented that all three of us are big The Clone Wars fans. I think The Clone Wars is a much more successful version of whatever we want to call Attack of the Clones. But I would really love if both of you could give sort of your top highlights of the show, the reason you love it more than you love episode two, um, the things that you think are successful about it. You have mentioned this already, but I it gives us time to really get to know and love Anakin if we get to forget as he's about the genocide. He's charming and quick-witted, and Matt Lanter is my Anakin Skywalker, and he always will be. I love him in that role. But there's other characters. You care about him. There's stakes yeah. for him. Yeah, and like his, yeah. his and Padme's relationship is more interesting as well. They actually have chemistry. Yeah. I mean, there are some <laughs> plot lines where, like, he's jealous of, like, an ex-boyfriend, which are, like, whatever. But um, there are, and on top of that, there are just, there are, it's not even, like, specific plot lines, but there are other characters in that show that just resonate with me that are feel missing from this movie because they didn't exist yet. But knowing that they're around the same time, namely Ahsoka Ahsoka Tano, who is um, Anakin's Padawan, Asajj Ventress, and also Darth Maul is not dead, and that is a lot. And just the whole bit about him, his revenge on Obi-Wan is something that hits me really hard. I recently rewatched the arc where Obi-Wan has to watch Darth Maul basically just murder the person that if he was not a Jedi, I think he would have married. (laughs) And it's just really heartbreaking. And I just love all the characters so much. Even the ones that we already know. Like, I even like Obi-Wan more in in that show as well. Absolutely. I I love Darth Maul. I mentioned in the last episode that he's easily in the top, my top five characters of Star Wars in general. And I... Uh, we were we were watching uh, we were rewatching the arc where he comes back on the Clone Wars the other day, and Sam just started singing "Bad Romance" because he is like obsessed with Obi Wan, and yeah. it is just such a great like overarching thing. He's a great villain. There's a lot about him that I think really works in terms of the scope of the entire Star Wars project, especially the Skywalker saga. Ahsoka Tano is the best Jedi. Like, she's everything that a Jedi should be. But I think Dave Filoni, who, as you said, he's not afraid of a good retcon. 
he uses Ahsoka to really interrogate what the Jedi are, what they should be, what they're not. And he uses her especially to start discussing how what the Senate and the Jedi do impact regular people, like the people who are living like on the lower levels of Coruscant, for an example. And, you know, it's just a, it, she's such a great character in and of herself, but then he uses her so well to actually dig into these problems that I think Lucas just scratched the surface of. Dathomir, which is where Maul comes from, and Asajj Ventress comes from, has some wild shit going on, and I love <laughs> yep. every minute of it. The Night Sisters are amazing. Um, anything with them is great. But yeah, I agree with you. Like, I care about Anakin so much in this show, and I think they do a much better job of pacing his anger than they do in... Like, because you can see in the show that he becomes Darth Vader. Like, that's not something that I'm ever like, oh, this guy can't become Darth Vader. Yeah. But, like, you see it, like, very, very slowly start to build and build and build. And you mentioned the storyline about Padme's ex-boyfriend, which I actually think about a lot because I think that's a better way of showing Anakin's progression than the genocide one because the genocide one goes too far. But the Clovis one illustrates to me that... Jealousy, which is a very natural emotion in a relationship, he doesn't know how to regulate it. No one's ever taught him how. They've told him he shouldn't have attachments. And he eventually beats Clovis almost to death, like in this moment. And he would have if Padme hadn't stopped him. To me, that's a much better sign of that kind of like destructive anger and that inability to to manage that anger than I think the genocide story is. Oh, and Asajj. Asajj Ventress is amazing. Assa- witch turned assassin turned bounty hunter and then I feel like that's all you have to say Sam what do you like about the Clone Wars Matt Lanter by the way uh, was opposite Abigail Spencer in Timeless I could say a lot about Ahsoka Tano I will today I probably will tomorrow and the day after that and for the rest of my life <laughs> so I mean I won't even talk about how Ahsoka Tano is involved in the one canonical way we could get rid of the Rise of Skywalker, just get rid of it, just retcon it. There is a canonically possible way to make that happen. We'll get to it. I also am very invested in future interactions between her and Force Ghost Anakin. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that because I've read The Truce of Bakura. I am heavily invested in the idea of Anakin as Force Ghost. But neither one of those things are the Ahsoka of the Clone Wars. They're the Ahsoka of later times. Uh, Dave Filoni, I, I mean, Ahsoka is Dave Filoni's character. And, and that is very well known. And you could say a lot about that. And, and one thing that you could say is that what Dave Filoni did with the Clone Wars is take the... And he is a George Lucas person. He came over from Lucasfilm to Disney. He's the only person to do that. I mean, there are other people who had relationships with George, like uh, Kennedy. But Filoni was Lucas's man. And now he's he he is no one's man. I think he's in charge. I think he's really in charge of it. Um, and I hope he gets named in charge of it. If James Gunn can be in charge of DC, Dave Filoni should be in charge of Star Wars. I think with Favreau. But uh, 
And and the reason I say that is the Clone Wars is really the first time that we see the universe expanded, but it's expanded within George Lucas's vision. To say this Clone Wars thing that has been talked about since 1977, maybe it's finally time to show, not tell. And within that, he's able to make Anakin a character we care about. He's able to show the relationship between Anakin and Ben Kenobi, you know, which you guys have talked about already. But here's what else he does. The two most recognizable women in the Star Wars universe, and really the only two except for Nightgown Mothma in Return of the Jedi, but you have two women that Lucas created. They both have costumes that are pure white because, you know, George Lucas went to school and learned that white symbolizes something. And he tries to turn them into badasses for like five minutes at a time here and there. But then pretty soon, you know, Leia has to be saved by a murder bear. And, you know, <laughs> you, you know how it goes, right? Dave Filoni says, we're not going to do that. So he creates Ahsoka Tano as a character, a woman who has agency. He creates Sabine, a woman who has agency. He creates Hera, a woman who has energy. Uh, she has some real energy, who has agency, Asajj Ventress. I mean, that's really what the best thing about the Clone Wars is, is, is this realization that Star Wars is a very narrow place and what Dave Filoni can do is expand it. And, you know, people go on a lot about how we need to get away from the Skywalker saga, which is true. We do. But what I really value about Dave Filoni, as opposed to Favreau, I think, who wants to maybe expand it a little bit more, which is why I think they'd be really good together. But Filoni knows there's a lot of meat left on the bone of this story without cloning. And um, I mean, like, later cloning, not this cloning. <laughs> to be clear, this cloning's fine. Well, it's not fine, but, you know. Well, I was going to say, that's the other thing, is it's the Clone Wars and the films. Like, maybe the clones have, like, two lines in, like, the two films that they're in. Yeah. I love Rex. I love the clones. I love Fives and Echo and like all of those clones. And I, it's so fascinating to me as the sci-fi nerd who studies post-human stuff, the ethics of creating people for the sole purpose of fighting a war. Like the whole point of this is that they are clones that can fight a war by proxy, right? For these, for the Senate, right? And so the ways that this show really develops those characters and the way they evolve, the way that the clones are given numbers, but they give themselves names and the way that they try to make each other look different so they can be, you know, so they're not interchangeable, right? So that they are actually people. And there's a lot in this show also about what happens after the war, what happens to them, you know, where are they actually from? You know, they talk a lot about how the way they view the war is conflicted because, on the one hand, they are not a, they're not like pro-war, but on the other hand, they wouldn't exist without the war. And so, you know, there's a lot of those kinds of conversations also happening in this too. And like also Rex, Ahsoka, and Anakin is like my squad. Like I want to just watch them do everything together. It's amazing. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's I, amazing because there's nobody to tell them they shouldn't do what they're going about to do. Yeah. Yeah, I I just I think it's so good. I just love all these characters and I would just watch them do anything. 
I said my mom was watching with me yesterday, um, and it, I was so excited to explain to her that in the Clone Wars, because they, my parents have not seen that, but they know it's, they know what it is and that I like it. I was explaining to her, I'm like, the clones all have, like, different personalities and nicknames for each other, and, like, it's really awesome to, to get to know them, um, and they're, it's and considering they're all voiced by D. Bradley Baker, I know, it's, like they're it's all voiced wild. by the same person, and he manages to imbue them all with like completely different personalities. I mentioned yesterday that the lightsaber duel at the end of the Phantom Menace is the best live action lightsaber duel, and it involves Maul. The best animated lightsaber duel also involves Maul, but it's between Maul and Ahsoka, and it is. I mean. I can't even describe to you how revolutionary the animation is in that scene, but it's beautiful. It's like beautiful and wonderful and heartbreaking all at the same time. I'm probably going to rewatch that the whole last season of The Clone Wars um, starting tomorrow. I didn't watch it before we talked now because a lot of it has to do with the next movie. So I am very excited to rewatch the last. I'm like, I watched a little bit here and there of the previous like six seasons but i'm gonna rewatch the entirety of season seven especially since um the bad batch is coming back yes and they, they've got that backdoor pilot in that last season yeah so uh the other thing that we watched was from puppets to pixels which is the doc that came along with episode two you both have seen it um i watched Sam, it today i found think? it on youtube yeah oh perfect Sam, what did you think about this documentary and how does it inform the way that you view episode two? It confirms that this was a... You begin to see in episode one that the technology is developing, that they can actually change an actor's performance after they've done it. And basically the making of episode two is Jurassic Park. We spent so much time Trying to figure out if we could. We never asked if we should. And I mean, on the one hand, watching this and seeing how they transferred Yoda from a puppet to a full computer-generated character. How they could make Count Dooku a composite of Christopher Lee, his stunt double, and a computer double, which would really be a triple in, te- in theory. <laughs> and and having seen the, the, the finished result, knowing that what they're trying, what they are building from, you know, the ground up being what they did in episode one and then building on it in episode two, having just seen the movie and knowing that for what it's worth, it works is impressive. I mean, I you cannot you can take a lot of things away from George Lucas, especially if you give him a lot of money. But but what you can't take away from him is and he's Peter Jackson the same way, right? These people are they hire a lot of people who do a lot of good work. But at the end of the day, without Peter Jackson and George Lucas, these things I don't really think they happen. And you can't take that away from him. Or Peter Jackson, for that matter. I have a lot less respect for George Lucas than I do Peter Jackson, though, because watching this documentary, it's horrifying. It's just realizing how little George Lucas seems to care about anything but 
the stuff that's in this documentary. And I mean, it's, it's meant to do a particular thing. This documentary is, but I think that's the thing. It's, it's watching craft and skill on display and then still being horrified by what's happening every second of it. It's a real experience. Elise, what did you think of the doc? I think that Sam was pretty spot on. It it solidified my there's a lot of cool aliens um in this movie and I do think that they really had a lot of fun there and it was great but it really is clear that that was the main focus and even the part where they're I mean my favorite Dexter Jetster they're they're perusing all of these figure heads to find to find him and and they're asking George Lucas about the character and he's like oh I don't know yet it's just very we got a cool looking guy but I don't I haven't thought about it like what his deal is yet it just feels very I assume every character was treated that way yeah I mean I agree I think it is impressive the amount of work that this movie was for the animators. Yeah. Like this was clearly a technological breakthrough. And I and I Sam said said this earlier, but I think everyone involved in that should get whatever job they want. They all yes. did excellent work. Yeah. But the problem is Lucas, I think, and the fact that he just wants to play with his shiny toys and he doesn't want to think about things like characterization or pacing or mm-hmm you know, development or anything like that. I will say the best part of the documentary was Lee's comments because we have this little voiceover from Christopher Lee where he talks about sword fighting in film and he talks about how he actually doesn't find it difficult to act against a green screen because he comes from a tradition where performance was everything and you just sort of had to imagine you know, whatever it is you need to imagine in order to get that performance. And I actually think Christopher Lee, looking back on it, is the most natural actor in this. Um, oh, totally. I don't think he had a problem acting against the green screen. And it just it just reaffirmed the fact that he's a professional. He had done amazing things, and I just love him so very, very much. All right, let's go on to Max Rebo's retcon corner. So very quickly, today there's still not much to talk about from green to home video that changed. There are just some very minor things. As I mentioned before, the things that happen in Attack of the Clones are retroactive retcons. You think about Anakin's actions once again with the Tusken Raiders, and it breaks a lot of things we know about him later on. It changes unless we choose to forget about it, as Dave Filoni does, and I recommend everybody do, we can't help but see Anakin differently in episodes 3, 4, 5, and 6. And there's another question that we haven't brought up yet, is how much does Obi-Wan actually know about what's going on between Padme and Anakin? Or is it, does he know or doesn't he know? There is a cut scene from Attack of the Clones that I mentioned earlier where he tells Mace Windu that Homeboy's in love with Padme. And so the question is, does he know or does he not know? And that really changes the way that we can read episodes three and four and Obi-Wan, the miniseries, I suppose. Um, And so what this does, as I pointed out to you yesterday, Tessa, this movie does the same thing that The Last Jedi does. It breaks shit. It takes what you know and goes, nope. And people are furious at Ryan Johnson for doing that. 
And, you know, I think they're wrong. I think there was another path to go down for The Last Jedi or Episode Eight that would have been fine. But what Ryan Johnson did was break it. And J.J. Abrams should have left it broken. But Ryan Johnson did what George Lucas did in Episode Two, which was break it. And he broke it badly. Which, by the way, Lucas and friends also broke shit in Empire Strikes Back. I was just about to say they did it then, too. But that's the thing. I mean, if you if you look at it that way, that's what the second movie in each each trilogy does. And you have the right way, the wrong way, and a different path. And this one was the wrong way, <laughs> for sure. And I think that's the most important thing to talk about in terms of retconning here is that it makes retconning necessary, is what Attack of the Clones actually does. Which is why The Clone Wars is so successful, is because Filoni's willing to do that. So on to our final segment, the lighter side of the Force, which we've already had a lot of laughs about this because I think it's hard to talk about this movie without kind of laughing at it. But I did want to us to have a chance to talk about things that made us laugh the most, or at least provoked a giggle. Sam, why don't you go first? The working title of The Phantom Menace was the beginning. The working title of Attack of the Clones was Jar Jar's Great Adventure. <laughs> that feels very like um passive aggressive of Lucas. Uh the word I was the phrase I was looking for was petty bitches. Petty bitches. All right. Elise What's something that you found to be the lighter side of the force in episode two? My boy Dexter Jetster looks like he should have been in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, absolutely. You're kind of obsessed with Dexter Jetster. I am. (laughs) He's just, I don't know. I bet he makes a good, like, breakfast platter. Oh, yeah. Completely could see that. He is the the uh, the progenitor of the Grand Slam on Coruscant. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> My thoughts. So we mentioned already that C-3PO gets picked up as part of the crew in this movie. He's reunited with Anakin and R2. And there was definitely a joke made as we were watching this. Did R2 request him as an anger translator? <laughs> like, was he like, we need this guy to translate what I'm saying? And if you've watched Key and Peel, which we showed Elise when she was here, the Key and Peel sketch about Obama's anger translator, R2 definitely needs an anger translator. I think it would be funny, but I also think it's funny to not know what he's saying. Like, I, I think... I think um, part of it for me with R2 is, like, just imagining it. But it would be really funny if there was, like, a skit. Like, I wouldn't want, like, a whole movie of it, but just, like, a little skit of, like, someone doing that with R2. That would be really funny. I also have to say that R2 ignoring just the chaos and bloodshed around him to go pick up 3PO and fix him in the middle of this battle is also extremely funny to me. He's just like, everybody's doing their own thing. I got to go help this guy because he can't help himself. I think it's very important also to note that Padme has a vag of steel because she jumps onto that creature from on top of that pillar. And every single time she does it, I like hurt a little bit inside. Like, does she have special armor down there or like what? It's a chastity belt. It's a chastity belt. I'm just joking. <laughs> um, I have a story well, that Mel I Brooks will tell Well, Mel Brooks wasn't you. when he made Spaceballs. Elise, you have given 
entire presentations about Padme's fashion sense and outfits throughout the prequel trilogy. Would you like to, to uh, give us the highlights of her fashion sense from Attack of the Clones? Yes, I would, lo- I would love to do that. There are actually three outfits in this movie that I really liked. Specifically at the beginning of the movie when... Oh, let me just give a little bit of background. Um, early in COVID... Please. Early in COVID times, we a bunch of us were just online and bored and from not being social. So we started having some Zoom parties and that turned into doing these PowerPoint things where people just... Everyone gave a little presentation on whatever the F they wanted to. I made a presentation about Padme Amidala's outfits in which I basically separated them into casual wear, regal wear, and gowns, which include nightgowns, um, and then picked, like, a favorite for each category. (laughs) Um, So (laughs) there are two outfits in the casual wear um, that I really liked from this movie. One of them, she's wearing... I'm not going to go too far into detail because I'm just going to assume everyone watched the movie, but she's wearing this, like, pilot's disguise when she comes to Coruscant at the beginning, and it just looks really cool. She's, like, these red pants and boots, and I just really like that. And she has, like, the long braids, so when she pulls off the helmet, they, like, come exactly. over her shoulder, and it just looks yeah. really good. I agree. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Um, This is not... Oh, then the next outfit is when they're going back to Naboo and she has that, like, refugee outfit on. But this outfit is so flamboyant. It's, like, that she has that, like, headdress that has, like, it's, like, metal and then it has, like, cover to it. And it's just, like, I don't think that Padme knows how to be, be incognito. Like, she just, it's, like, against <laughs> her religion or something. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's just like, doesn't make any sense to me. And I love it. And she's extremely extra. And I think one of my favorite things about her is that like, she's not like a high maintenance person. I mean, everyone kind of treats her that way because of her role. And but like, she's pretty low key, I feel like. So it's just funny that she dresses so extra. And then lastly, my favorite outfit of hers probably in general is the outfit the white outfit with the boots and then the like ivory cape that she wears leading up to um when she's when they're going to save obi-wan and then when she's in the gladiator pit and unfortunately she loses the cape and the the shirt gets ripped which was a little bit of um I couldn't tell like what they were doing with that like they just wanted to show off her stomach or something I don't know they had to make it sexier, I guess. Well, it was funny because Natalie Portman in an interview actually like was kind of excited about it because she had just turned 18. And oh. so there was like a big thing about like, you know, like she could I can show, show skin, you know, now. she could show okay. a little stomach and, you know, but like in the interview, she was like excited about it. Like she liked, okay, well, that's you know, good to know, being able to do that with her costumes. So it was just really funny. It is also funny to me that, 10 years have gone by since the Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, but she only aged three years, which is just funny to me. Like, she's actually playing older in yeah. this than she actually was. That's fair. I do think she looks more than three years older in this movie than she did in the last one. Natalie Portman's great. Oh, yeah. 
which uh, transitions us because you are a co-host of Pod Wraiths. We are keeping the Pod Wraiths tradition of having a thirst section at the end of this. We asked Matt yesterday about who in this film is the most attractive person. Who are we thirsting for in this film? Elise, who are we thirsting for in Attack of the Clones? I think we all know I'm obsessed with Kit Fisto, but he's only in this movie for like two seconds, and I prefer his animated version, as I said earlier. I have a crush on all sorts of animated characters. It's just Padme. Like, that's that's the answer. Padme. <laughs> she's hot. I would normally say Obi-Wan, and I find him very attractive in the next film, but his hair in this film is horrendous. Um, It's the worst hair that I think Ewan McGregor has ever had put on his head. Is it worse than the the haircut he had in The Phantom Menace? Yes. Yes, you think so. Okay. Yeah. It's just I like, will say too. It just like flips out. It just doesn't make any sense. It's just I think I mean it's just a bad wig, but it's kind of inconsistently colored too. Like it's lighter on top. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I get what you're saying. I also will say that to to go back to our Anakin from the Clone Wars is better than the Anakin of the show. And this is not a knock against Hayden Christensen, who is just doing the best that he can. And honestly, that haircut, again, doesn't look any better on him than it did on Ewan McGregor. But the Anakin of the show is much hotter than than the Anakin of the film. Absolutely. Sam, have you changed your answer from yesterday, which was still Natalie Portman? No. But I will (laughs) say we do have a live action Shakti, and that's not bad. Yeah, we do get to see Shakti in the background, and she is also very hot. Yeah, I mean, Natalie Portman. I mean, again, I like had a crush on her since I saw her in these movies. Very formative experience for me seeing her in these films. So that's probably a, a good deal of my my sexual awakening is about Star Wars, apparently. So, <laughs> yes, absolutely agree. I feel like the thirst section for the first three movies is extremely boring because we're all just like Natalie Portman. Like, who else are you going to pick? Yeah. So, I can, I'm like, I wouldn't answer anyway because it's not my film, but I can't even think of a different person. Maybe maybe Kit yeah, Fisto because you? you get a little more Kit Fisto. <laughs> Kit Fisto. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, and then the other thing that we're having people do is just, without getting into too much detail since we haven't gotten to the, a lot of the later films yet, do you have any sort of ranking or any sort of like grouping of the films? Mine has 12 movies because it includes the Lego Star Wars holiday special that came out a couple years ago. Rank that list. In last place, number 12 is The Rise of Skywalker. 11 is Solo. 10 is The Phantom Menace. 9 is the Lego Star Wars holiday special. 8 is Attack of the Clones. 7 is The Force Awakens. 6 is Revenge of the Sith. Five is Rogue One. Four is Return of the Jedi. Three is The Last Jedi. Two is A New Hope, aka Star Wars. My parents are constantly telling me that A New Hope was not what it's called when it came out. And number one is The Empire Strikes Back. What was your ranking, your letterbox ranking for Attack of the Clones this time that you watched it? 
I had previously ranked it at, or rated it at three stars. And after watching it yesterday, I changed it to three and a half stars. Anything else? Anyone on Attack of the Clones? There was a good movie in there that didn't happen. Like, it could have been. I said this before. I'll say it again. Great idea, man. Not so great at the execution. And I, yeah, I will definitely say that again. All right. Well, thank you for coming on, Elise. Uh, We will actually be seeing you soon in the series because you will be rejoining us for our discussion of Return of the Jedi. So be looking forward to that, dear listeners. Elise, where can people... Oh, sorry. Okay. Next time, tomorrow, (laughs) if you are listening to this, we will be discussing... Episode three, Revenge of the Sith, will be joined by our lovely producer, Ryan, to discuss the final installment of the prequel trilogy. Elise, where can people find you online and in their headphones? Yes, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at chicken double underscore tendi, T-E-N-D-I. You can find my podcast, Pod Wraiths, a Deep Space Nine podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Pod Wraiths, P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S. Sam, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Melody Valentine. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd and Storygraph at The Buy Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld books. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. You can also find more from both Sam and I on moviejohn.com. I just published a piece there on androids and cyborgs in film. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. May the force be with you, and get that monkey off your back.